Welcome back to my podcast, Beyond the Water Cooler. Here we are for the fifth series. As usual, we'll be covering all things that shape employee experience, engagement, performance, and loyalty. And that's a biggie at a time with budget cuts and the workforce feeling the pinch, including increasing pressure at work. We'll be unpicking how leaders show up and create the right culture for people to thrive. One that enables psychological safety, builds team cohesion, and nurtures mental well-being. I'm your host, Lisa. As a psychologist and a psychotherapist in my business, It's Time for Change, I get to make a real difference in the world of people. I help deal with those challenges and questions that consume headspace. So whether that's knowing how best to support people, reduce overwhelm, or develop better ways of working, I'm your soundboard, problem unpicker, and guide to doing things differently that ultimately increase employee happiness and outcomes. My mantra is simple, get people right, get business right. So let's dive in. Before I welcome this week's guest, I just want to let you know about two free resources that are available for you to download. As Mental Health Awareness Week draws to a close, I'm keen to empower people to continue having the conversations that really matter. This week has had a focus on anxiety, and we know that normalising discussions, helping people become more aware, and enabling them to take positive action makes a real difference. The Team Discussion Framework is a process for teams to use to tackle anxiety collectively. It can also be used individually or with friends and family. The benefit of exploring the questions and working through the 10 steps collectively is the opening up of perspectives and opportunities to think and behave differently. The individual tips audio blog is a 10 minute outline of strategies that are proven to help reduce anxiety. Please do share this with anyone you know who wants to manage it better, to experience greater control. Official figures show that record numbers of people are not working due to ill health, including mental health, in the UK. We all have a part to play in reducing that trend. Find the links to the resources in the show notes. So my guest today is all about changing the narrative to create empowered cultures in which teams and individuals can thrive. He is an exceptionally enthusiastic guy. um, And those of you who know him will be familiar with his drive to inspire, supercharge and disrupt. I particularly like those uh, words. Um, You're very passionate about um, connection um, and having good conversations around curiosity and change. Um, And you've got a really good sense of humour, which I think comes across on your uh, a lot of your LinkedIn posts. Um, so welcome to the show, Nick Gemetta, founder of Stories Matter. Thank you very much. Wow. And I need to hire you to do, to do my marketing. You've done a, be- a better <laughs> job than I have. <laughs> your, your LinkedIn posts um, really communicate your energy. Um, and I think it's fair to say your quite unique approach. I remember the first time I actually saw you, you were, there was some quite crazy photograph of you doing something on there and I was just like who is this guy you you intrigued <laughs> me and actually <clears throat> I I was interested because you were commenting on some other people's comments uh, on their posts and I really liked what you had to say so I was like I've got to get behind this kind of facade and what I'm what I'm seeing and actually work out who you, who you are you got a um you describe yourself as a fancy dressed dad on your LinkedIn profile um, I and I and, and I'm curious to know how you got that title. Most people are. Um, where do I start? I mean, I suppose <laughs> I start at the beginning and we can to through it. So I've always struggled with anxiety, although, you know, when I was younger, I didn't call it that. There was a lot of overthinking. There was a lot of worrying, a, a lot of not being able to fit in. You know, I, I, I'm an 80s kid. So in the 80s, we didn't talk about our feelings and men definitely didn't talk about their feelings and men had to be good at football. And I was I, I wasn't any of those things. I was the I was the geek playing Warhammer and Dungeons and Dragons before it was cool. Like mm-hmm. before the Games Workshop share price rocketed through the roof. Mm-hmm. I wish I bought shares then. I was that kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had loads of hang ups about um, my body image. I struggled with self worth, self confidence. It was this kind of melting pot of negativity in the context of a pretty happy childhood. You know, my family setting was stable. My education was stable, but I had no stability internally. Mm. 
I went to university and I think I only went there because I didn't I didn't know any better. Um and I've since <laughs> I've since reflected on some of those kind of milestones in my life because university was a milestone getting into career was a milestone and there's this notion now of milestone anxiety and that that to me was one of the the drivers behind why I struggled so much when I went to university you know, that support network I have with my family was ripped away I was drinking too much I hadn't really in any meaningful way faced into my mental health mm. um, and too much alcohol as you all know from a medical point of view when you're struggling with your mental health is, is a really bad idea and that led to me experiencing suicidal thoughts for six to nine months off and on they weren't constant it was when I started heavily drinking um and I really I was, it was really clumsy the way that I kind of found my way out of that because when I started university nobody spoke to me about where I should go to get support for my mental health I was told where where the bar was and how to get my student loan, but support for the mind was not was not a priority. So I didn't get therapy. Um, I surrounded myself with people that started to recognize in myself the things that I couldn't recognize, and they started to show me that I that I could bring value and um, be who I was. Mm. And I'd never I've never experienced that. And that kind of inner confidence, that kind of 1% that they helped me build, I then started to layer foundations as my as my career went on because I then went straight into the workplace. And you're in the workplace, you're struggling with anxiety, you're not saying anything. Mm. You know, It was horrible. Um, but I didn't want to go back to those kind of dark, difficult places. So I decided that this was who I was, this is part of who I am. So I had to just try and make it work for me. How did I do that? As someone that struggles with it, anxiety is it often um makes me question things because i've got all these things firing in my head you know i'm taking scenarios to a catastrophe before it's even happened but it also made me like really curious because i was constantly trying to figure out what was going on so curiosity in the workplace is a super strength and i i played into that uh, i embraced my inner nerd by uh kind of falling into digital and technology which as it happens was a great career move um and in in the other thing I was doing throughout my life at that point was I was pushing myself out, out of my comfort zone, but on a continuous basis. I wasn't making massive leaps. It's not like I was going from day job to all of a sudden presenting to CEO, but I was doing the 1%. I was looking at the compound effect of if I can make myself a little bit uncomfortable, I know I'm learning. Mm. I know I'm growing. Growing. I know I'm feeling a little bit more confident because I can look back on something I didn't think I could do and realize I could do it. And the compound effect of that led me to this life-changing moment in 2018 where I went to a public speaking course. And this is as someone that didn't love public speaking, struggled with a stutter, but thought this is one of my 1%. And that was the first time I shared my mental health story publicly because up until that point, I'd never said anything. And I was in my mid-30s at that point. So I'd kept it bottled for nearly 20 years. You know, when I shared my story, the reaction from the people around me changed my life because they said to me, why aren't you doing more with this? And you sharing this story has such a profound impact on us. I think that you could use this for greater good. And that was when I, you know, I, I started the journey to fancy dress that because I took this passion for well-being into my workplace. I founded the first employee resource group that was focused on the topic and I had no prior experience I did take time to think about the safeguarding side of things I took time to recognize that I wasn't a medical professional I wasn't trained like you are mm. but I could open up the conversation and as a man in a corporate world talking about anxiety like that was super powerful massively it, it, it was huge and it led me on this journey to expanding that network in in the company I was in I started to share what I was doing on LinkedIn I ended up winning an award for my work and it was just creating this 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 it was like another world it was like a, an alternative reality because I still had a day job mm. digital and tech I still have my family and then I've got all this well-being stuff yeah um but when lockdown hit I, w I, I was in the middle of these two worlds I was in the middle of trying to provide my for my family within a fairly intense business I knew what how my mental health was feeling and I knew how my colleagues mental health was feeling. So I was always looking for an angle. How can I help? How can I support 
my colleagues at pretty much the most difficult time I could remember in my career. The reason that I chose fancy dress, by the way, is 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 very random. I was inspired by Joe Wicks because he 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 was doing mm. his, his PE with Joe, yeah. and I was doing that you know with my family just to get some structure into the day because juggling homeschool and a full time job was a flipping nightmare, as you yeah. probably know. <laughs> um, and Joe Wicks did this fancy dress with Joe one Friday, so I jumped in in into the the thirty minute class virtual class in a think a skeleton onesie. I then was too lazy and did had no time to to shower or to or to change. And I was also that curiosity came back. I was like, Zoom calls are getting pretty robotic. I can see that people are absolutely hating the back to back to back to back. This is such a simple change that I think it might help. It might just lighten the mood a bit. So I rocked up on that first call. I put my camera on. There was a mixture of WTF for sure. There was a, a few people scratching their head, but there was loads of people just laughing. And, I could, and smiling and what I found as the day went on was that the zoom call was changing because people were talking to me about what I was doing and it was opening up a more human conversation and literally that one costume led me on this incredible journey that saw me wear 100 costumes to 100 days of work calls I raised 10,000 pound for charity and fancy dress dad was the the name that just giving gave to me because they they supported me with national PR basically, which ended up with me getting into all sorts of media outlets. And this kind of fancy dress metaphor, this superhero alter ego was created. And I still use it today in the work I do. I think the value of it is it makes a conversation which can be quite difficult for a lot of people, especially men. We don't like to talk about how we feel generally. Mm. And that is a stereotype, but I've, I've got enough evidence to tell me that it's a relatively fair stereotype. I'd agree, yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, when you rock up on a Zoom call, when I go to to into schools or go to a bit organizations dressed as Wolverine or Spider-Man, I still get the WTF, but more of it is optimism and laughter and hope and lightheartedness. And it makes a difficult topic mm. accessible. I, I love that because I think you're, you know, when you rock up in a in an outfit and people are going what is this guy about it's just because it's different and everyone clocks you know everyone will have an expectation if this guy called Nick's coming to talk to us about our stories our mental health our anxiety or whatever it is they'll have this preconception of what they're going to what they're going to experience agree you rock up looking like spider-man or whatever you are going to have people questioning and but that's the best thing isn't it it's literally to shake things up and to, to just break the cycle of these patterns like you know everyone's just operates in this like monotonous kind of routine we just know what to expect and then of course we get it and actually when you I always talk to people about punctuating that pattern like if you just punctuate it somewhere different things will happen as a result and I and I love that so you're going in and and actually this, the power of stories and I and that's why I really love the name of your um, organization the stories really do matter it's at it's not about adding layers of complexity in terms of these new initiatives and you know we need to introduce x y and z it's actually just hear people's stories and just open that conversation and being curious and being human and connecting if we can if people can share and just talk authentically about how they are showing up how they're feeling, what's getting in the way for them today, which might be something that's different to yesterday, or what I'm feeling really excited about today, or you know our energy levels and and so on. If we just normalise that, people will be able to be more authentic, and that automatically reduces that sense of anxiety and overwhelm. Yeah, I mean it was massive for me mm. that day in 2018 where I, I figured out who I was and could authentically be that person. It's so liberating. Mm. Because up until that point, I'd always felt like I'd worn a mask. And mm. I know in the work I've done in those four years, there are so many people out there. Because whenever I do these talks or these workshops or these seminars or these keynotes, whether it's in this country, virtual, you know, international, I've done some international work, the reaction is always the same. You always get the doubters and and and, and that's totally fine. Interesting with the doubters, sometimes you'll hear from them months later where something's happened and suddenly something you've said yeah. resonates yeah and that that is always really powerful but you always get the people immediately afterwards that that say so much of what you said sounds like it could have been me mm. whereas at the time I was struggling 
I think this is true for for many folks out there. You think you're the only one. Mm. So sharing a story is as much about making someone feel connected, mm. less alone, less isolated. I think you know we saw in the pandemic the impact of loneliness and isolation was huge on mm. on people's mental health, and that and that was another reason why I was doing these silly things with the costumes. You know, I got into our local papers. Um, I worked with Age UK, who, who who kind of put some of my stuff into some local care homes just to give kind of those those folks um, something to smile about. To my wife's chagrin and my children's, I was wearing the costumes on the school run. <laughs> so I would rock up. I mean, you know, the Easter Bunny would rock up at school. Mm. And I terrified some of the younger kids. But <laughs> it, I've, and I, it, and this isn't me saying it afterwards people said like you genuinely helped us get through a really difficult time by doing something that to you seems small but to us was huge I mean it it really made me laugh when I one of the costumes I wore was Mr Blobby <laughs> and I I loved Noel's house party when I was a kid but oh, yeah. there was a real divide at school because all of the children were either terrified or clueless whereas all the adults and the teachers were the ones that, yeah. that, that were kind of getting something from yeah. it so in the kind of diversity of the costumes I wore, there was pretty much something in there for everyone. But I think it's interesting, isn't it? Like how many people do wear masks? And I was having a conversation with someone literally just before um, we started this conversation about almost the notion of Russian dolls. You know, you, there's, you can peel off different layers. And when I'm working with um, people and I'm wearing my psychotherapy hat, I have a, um, a rock which... Uh, on the outside, it's just like a really plain hard rock, but you turn it over on the inside, there are lots of crystals and, and things like that. It's that sense of what do people see on the outside? You know, what if you ask people to describe you, what would they say? And I often get people to, you know, think about what would your boss say? What would your colleague say? Three three things I'd say about you. And then what would you say about yourself? What's really going on underneath? Um, and the, the kind of difference is usually quite stark, as, but people don't let their masks, or don't take their masks off. And that means that we've end, we end up having this culture where people are just walking around pretending to be something they're not. And that puts a huge amount of strain on keeping up that appearance um, and actually just not being able to tune in and communicate how you're really feeling, what's really going on for you. And, and that that comes back to the curiosity and being honest and open. You know, I love what you said about how can I help my colleagues? So you're not an expert in mental health. But you had enough interest and care to to ask and to be curious about how can I really help my colleagues? And if everyone started off with that real intention, um, it would go a long way rather than, hey, doing say I'm fine, great, move on. It's like, no, no, how, how are you really doing? What's going well today? What's not going so well today? And actually probing a bit more. If we all did 1% more, to my earlier point about the compound effect, the, the you know, the ripple effect would be massive. And that's why one of the things that I'm most passionate about is you know, through through the work I do as Fancy Dress Dad, but also through some some training work I do through Chasing the Stigma, who are a UK mental health charity, um, you know, to upskill everybody in being a little bit more confident to have conversations. Mm. And that doesn't mean making everyone a medical expert, it doesn't mean training everyone to be a therapist, but what it does mean, and I see this day in, day out, week in, week out, so many of us are so good at talking but we're so bad at listening and very often when someone's struggling with their with their mental health it might be difficult for them to speak out but if they do sometimes all they need is just someone there to listen mm. and i don't think it takes much for us to just all have a little bit more education on some of the words and phrases not to say some of the things to say and then the clear boundary don't solve the problem you're not a medical professional but you can signpost and you can signpost very easily to organizations, to individuals that can help. I agree. And actually, I like what you said about everyone. So because, again, some companies are going down the what I think is the easy route of just getting mental health first aiders trained. If we have those people over there, then if anyone really wants to talk, they can go and talk to them rather than everyone having a responsibility for looking out for everyone. So if we all took a bit more responsibility on for those around us, being able to really listen and some people it won't be their <coughs> strength their skill set and that's fine and actually if you notice someone is, is struggling a little bit or you're concerned or 
what you, you're noticing something that you're you're worried about then actually linking them up with someone else in the organization but for everyone to take that seriously in terms of what can I do what what what's really going on can I just have an honest and open conversation rather than having to signpost it even internally just to a mental health first aider who is not an expert but they are seen to be more expert than the general workforce I think actually everyone needs to step up and have those that care that those conversations and be empowered to do so through some training or um you know whatever it takes to for people to know how to listen well that's certainly my view and I know there's been a lot of debate about mental health first aid because of the you know, mm. proposed law that 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 parliament are discussing right now but and I am you know, I have been through mental health first aid training and it's great awareness training and it augmented all of the experience and the work I was already doing but I'm very much in the camp of let's upskill everyone yeah I would love my mum my dad my children their teachers you know everybody to get age appropriate mm. education on this topic I mean I'm also for the record a supporter of the work that three dads walking are, are, are looking at I don't know if you've heard of those three but you know they're just they're just such amazing human beings you know having lost all all of them have lost children to suicide I just think again it's a relatively simple change they want to make age appropriate suicide mm. prevention education at you know whatever age is is most appropriate to start you know I think these topics need to be part of um, everyday dialogue and we need to do that in terms of you know the numbers so stress anxiety and depression are thought to be responsible for almost half of all working days lost in Britain um, and according to the workplace health report last year 58 percent of employees are experiencing anxiety um and 34 percent of those experiencing anxiety are aged 25 to 34 and you think about you know the current state of what's going on in society now with i mean whether it's wars strikes the whole financial crisis there is so much that people are really anxious about it's going to take more than a few individuals with a, few, a specific skill set to resolve that. Actually, it needs we've got to have a look at the whole, the big picture, the much more around the preventative approach. And I know that's something you're hugely passionate about is actually rather than waiting for people to show signs of anxiety and then sort of dealing with that, it's actually how do we get everyone on board to reduce overall levels of anxiety? Yeah, look, I think there's always going to be a place for intervention and for crisis management of course there is and all of us as I say can be upskilled in knowing how to signpost organizations should have those basic fundamental support structures but to your point if I think more holistically about what what's happening we need to deal with the root causes mm. and this is where my multiple worlds come together in quite an interesting way because technology enabled businesses are thinking about the way they work in a completely different way. The structures are uh, um, coordinated in a different way. The cultures are different. You know, the way they work is about ongoing iteration. It's about continuous feedback. It's about empowerment. If if every business thought more about, okay, well, how can we better empower people? How can we give them autonomy? How can we focus on the outcome, the measurable impact of their work rather than the outputs? How can we set ourselves up as leaders to be great coaches? How as leaders can we role model mm. healthy, sustainable behaviors that still create value, mm. generate revenue, are productive, but are sustainable over the long term? Because I've 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 experienced burnout myself, and I can tell you it's a horrible experience. And it doesn't need to be like that. But you know, it needs structural fundamental changes across the workplace. And I think it is happening. You know, yeah, you have started the journey. Yeah, and I think that you know that strategic approach is where when you and I first had a conversation at some point last year, um, we're like actually we're both kind of we're both on the same page with that because when companies talk about anxiety or mental health, sometimes it's very much about this is a mental health problem and therefore we need some people focusing on mental health rather than actually my stance has always been you need to look at the whole everything you've just described you need to look at the big picture you need to look at how meaningful are people's jobs to them and how well connected are they and what how well recognized are they in terms of the the value they provide and 
there are so many levels across the entire organization which would not come under a mental health umbrella but if you get all those things right and you look you meet people's essentially their emotional needs in terms of that sense of control and feeling good about themselves and and so on actually you wouldn't have half the the issues going on in the workplace around mental health people obviously be bringing in whatever from outside but actually at work you're reducing the some of the tensions that can contribute to poor mental health just by focusing on the stuff that's not mental health related but just about helping people feel good at, at work yeah i mean i completely agree um i think i think the narrative is changing more in that direction so there's a a guy called i've got to just get his name right gethin nadin or nadin i'm sorry gethin if i pronounce your name wrong he's he's a really incredible influential speaker author in this space and he talks about well-being being a business imperative hmm. i think that's what you're describing there and obviously your commentary about the, the emotional needs side of it is spot on so i think if if more businesses treated well-being as a strategic imperative we would be able to move much faster towards that world that we're describing when you see well-being as one of your strategic focus areas rather than a nice to have it benefits people it benefits productivity benefits profit you know i see well-being as much of an imperative as i see digital transformation and and, and technology and we we already know the benefits of the bottom line of tech and digital i think well-being is that next big strategic theme of the next big wave that organizations need to wake up to and there are there are forward-thinking organizations but there are still way too many mm. that either don't know don't understand don't care or don't know where to start with that with that topic of making well-being an imperative mm. and that's where it's just having the confidence to say actually we just don't know where to start rather than giving it to someone the number of people i speak to say i've just had this thing land on my desk my job is to sort out <laughs> well-being or mental health whatever it is in this organization like well you can't do it on your own um and it's, and it's being able to put your hands up and say we know we need a more strategic approach but we need some help to, to think that through so who do you what i'm curious to know um is whether from, from your experience because you've talked about uh your own experience you talked about uh the three dads and suicide do you see a difference in terms of who anxiety affects because there are some stats again around um the the work health uh, the workplace health report also found that 62% of employees experiencing anxiety are female and i think that highlights the different potentially different pressures that um some women uh are under in terms of whether it's the type of roles they're in they're the ones that get cut first uh, because of the industry that they're in whether it's because they're primary caregivers as well whether it's because they're actually better reporting um whether their symptoms are easier to to detect like what what is it you think in terms of who's most susceptible to anxiety i'm just curious from your own experience yeah i mean the the numbers i think are quite compelling mm. i think your point about whether women are more likely to say something to me is an important inflection point mm. given I, you know i i still see amongst the male community that we're still too unwilling to talk about it i mean i think in the past i made sweeping assumptions that it was people like me that would struggle with anxiety and i remember that in one of my old workplace places there was a, a colleague who i was kind of really good friends with and she always struck me as very confident like super capable it seemed like she had it together and I remember one day she said to me, I really, you know, I, I really admire what you're doing. I said, well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And she said, the reason for that is because I, I'm an anxious person. I, I struggle with anxiety. I remember the, remember the first thing I said, and I've never said it again, was you don't strike me as, as the sort of person who would, who, who would be struggling. Mm. And the, it was like a mic drop moment because I suddenly thought, well, of course you're not. Because I'm not, even though the numbers would indicate that maybe there is a more of a prevalence in a certain demographic. Mm. I mean, you you might have a different view from a medical standpoint that maybe you know there are light there, there are signals in DNA and upbringing in roles and responsibilities that might cue one way or the other. But mm. to me, I think I'm as likely as 
Joe Wicks as the prime minister as my neighbour next door. Yeah, I, and I think that is a really important message. Um, there are, you know, I'm some of my clients I'm working with are very much affected by you know their parents who have mental health problems, so they've right, been yeah. brought up in a context where mental health problems and the behaviours are the, the norm. So obviously that shapes you when you're growing up. But actually, I think what you just said is really important. Actually, we are all vulnerable. And there's if we just remember that um, there is no certain kind, there's no type of person who is going to become more anxious um, than another. If we had that as a kind of guiding principle. So in other words, you could have the quiet person who looks anxious or you could have the person who's loudest in the room, who likes to appear to be the centre of attention, but actually underneath, they're like a swan, you know, they're very, yeah. very present, but actually underneath they're scrabbling, you know, and I think that we all show it in very, very different ways and we shouldn't make assumptions. We have to avoid making assumptions or check them out, you know, to become aware. We naturally will because we're humans and we always um, jump to conclusions, but actually just being aware and saying, what well, is that person really that confident or is that person... How are they managing to do that? Is that who they really are? Or are they actually having to put in a huge amount of effort behind the scenes to be able to present like that? Which I think makes it harder for people to spot then the signs of anxiety because they are so different for different people. Well, do you give advice around what some of those signs might be? Those sort of early signs of anxiety? Yeah, there's a question. I, I would never say I give advice because I'm always very clear that that's not my role. But I, I, I share I share what it looks like for me, I suppose. Because what does that look like? How, how would people spot that you're anxious, Nick? I mean, in the early days that they wouldn't have known, because to your point, I was I was exhausting huge amounts of energy mm. in hiding it. I think you know those closest to me now will know if i'm struggling a bit if um if my sleep starts getting affected um if my uh, appetite starts getting affected if i'm a bit snappier with my children like they'll see slight changes in my behavior if i'm if i'm spending more time than usual like buried in my phone because i might be anxious about you know, work, for example. Um, my wife often might, you know, ask me if everything's all right. If if, if I'm, if, if there isn't much conversation happening, because sometimes if my anxiety starts to spike, I can go into my own head a little bit. Um, and also, you know, my anxiety at, at times presents itself in just feeling physically unwell, and just emotionally exhausted, fatigued. I start getting, you know, sore throat. I start just not feeling great. And I mean, it happened this week where I was starting to get anxious about work and within 24 hours, I'd started to get some kind of physical symptoms around it. And it might be the two aren't connected, but it's happened to me enough that I think there's at least some connection yeah. there. And we uh, know that mental health and physical health are so closely related that that's, that's actually quite common what you're describing Massively. And I think that point is, I'm so glad you made that point because it's a point I make all the time. Even though I talk about mental health, I don't really, I talk about health. Mm. So when I, when I burned out, you know, I, I still remember the day that I decided I needed to phone the doctor because it had been about a year in the making where, you know, you spoke earlier about awareness. Awareness for me is one of the key things I talk about when I do my work with organizations and in schools, because you can't take action unless you tune into what's going on for you and why. Mm. And I knew throughout that lockdown that my work wasn't giving me what I needed it to give me. And it was actually taking away a lot of the things that, that I really valued. And I noticed that I was starting to struggle with my sleep. Um, I'm, I'm quite a, I'm quite a skinny guy, which has always been a, a problem for my mental health because I had this picture of what a man should be. Mm. I can't really afford not to eat so when I then started to lose my appetite that, that was odd I said earlier about not like being buried in my phone you know when I was burning out I started to feel like I was living in someone else's body almost it was mm. almost like I was witnessing my life without really being there and that was a really bizarre thing but then I started to get like stomach cramping and then I started getting chest pains and as soon as I started getting chest pains I said to my wife I don't actually think I can manage this on my own anymore 
Mm. And that I think was a bit of a revelatory moment because it, it really, for me, connected the mind and the body, which is why the framing of mental health is useful, but in many respects it isn't useful because we shouldn't be separating the two things. Yeah. We have, you know, our body, our health has to work as one for mm. us to be well. Yeah. So what, so I'm curious to know, and you might not have an answer for this, going back, you know, in terms of thinking about organisations um, and people being able to look out for each other and actually being able to spot the signs that potentially someone isn't okay, that they are experiencing anxiety, you, your own experience, you'd masked it very well. So you were someone who put a huge amount of effort into looking okay. Yeah. If you were to rewind you know, the benefit of hindsight, what could have changed that situation for you? So what would you've ideally liked someone in that organisation to do? Bearing in mind, you weren't really letting anything on to anyone. Was it something, you know, were, ideally would someone in that organisation have said something or done something, even though there were no apparent signs? Or would you have had more information at that point so that you would have had the courage to say something what so replaying that because there'll be lots of people who are in that com, com, that situation now who are still ex- doing exactly what you were doing then and they haven't managed to work out how to move that on <laughs> or bosses potentially listening to this thinking well I could have loads of people like that and I don't know who they are so yeah I think for me it's two-sided I I would have felt more confident opening up with hindsight and the reason I would have felt more confident is because my first line manager was still my best line manager. I mean, she's actually a really good friend now. I look back now and she was just such an amazing coach. She she role modeled the right behaviors. She was vulnerable, authentic. She was open. I think she would have cultivated with me having a bit more confidence, the right conversations. I mean, I think she would even say though that, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, as a manager and in the broader ecosystem of, um the leadership within that business she never really wants to ask those kind of questions that might have encouraged me to open up mm. even though we got on well a lot of the conversations were still very task orientated mm. and so leaders being comfortable having more of a human dialogue with their people leaders who are more able to be a coach and able to lead with context rather than control you know would have probably tipped me to the point where I would have been comfortable speaking up I mean if I look broader than her there was still a lot of the very negative stereotypes because she was you know of all the senior management team I think she was the only female Mm. you still have the old boys club the men must be men mentality I imagine there are still businesses like that now you know I I, I talk to lots of different people I know I'm a white middle-aged man but I try to be a great ally where I can. I've got a daughter. I, I try to be a great ally on gender. I try to be a great ally on mm-hmm. race, on ethnicity. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I talk to diverse sets of people, they still say, well, one of the biggest problems to me opening up or to me seeing a change is I look around and above me and I don't see anyone like me. Yeah. And that I think yeah. is a is a super important part of the dialogue on the workplace experience as a whole, not just mm-hmm. on mental health, but how we bring... Mm-hmm more diverse voices how we make the workplace more inclusive how we make it more mentally healthy we need to see role modeling from different perspectives i think you've you've made some really good points there and it actually reminds me of um a the podcast that went out for international women's day um when i spoke with dr sean andrews we were talking about the different um the kind of qualities that male and female leaders bring and you know, just about our perceptions of different people as leaders and their different qualities in terms of what they provide for the company and how you need to have a, you need to have diversity on a leadership board. So that, as you say, people have someone that they relate to, that they connect with. And because if you have that sense of connection, you're more likely to open up. And I think you made a really good point about, um, you know, the relationship is so important. So you talking, you know, having that good relationship with your first manager, although she didn't ask necessarily the right questions, probably because they just weren't really thought about at that point, um, you had a really good relationship. So actually that was where you could be 
more yourself. And actually, we, we can't go into organisations and suggest to people or, you know, hope that they are going to ask the right questions and get the right, honest and open answers if we don't have the relationships. And that goes back to this huge emphasis that I always put on to organisations, particularly around leadership teams, because it's got to be modelled by them. We've got to create space to have time to build relationships, to actually just get to know each other, to get to know who we connect most with and what you know, having fun together and all that stuff around just being people who we like hanging out with so that we are more likely to then have the real conversations when they they matter it can't just be a right how are you doing today now tell me really how you're doing today if actually I don't know anything about you don't really know anything about me I'm not going to open up I mean it's spot on and I I wish more organizations would would embrace the philosophy that you're describing because it's mm. one that, that that I talk to organizations about as well mm. you can still deliver outcomes but you can do it with more humanity, with more compassion, mm. with more kindness. Mm. And it, you know, it's more sustainable and it's more valuable in the long run. Mm. You've only got to look at you know, some of the numbers that that you were talking about. I think I saw a stat from the health and safety executive, something like 822,000 people signed off work with anxiety and depression. That's a yeah. massive number of people. I mean, think about the cost. And obviously there'll be a proportion of those people that might, have a diagnosable you know mental illness that that aren't able to come into the workplace but i would think a decent chunk of those people might be in a toxic workplace mm. might be struggling with a line manager at work might be struggling with the amount of pressure they're on at work when actually it, it wouldn't take much to change the dynamic of those relationships to enable those people to come back into work and 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 to contribute yeah Exactly. And that's that's about identifying actually where the problem is. And rather than assuming it's the individual who's off sick, look at what's really going off on exactly. the company. And that's actually, a root cause. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, there's potentially a number of companies around who are afraid to do that because it puts a huge amount of responsibility on them and the need to, yeah, just shine the the, the lens on themselves and actually understand that they've got a big shift which takes quite a lot of effort to make. Um, and what I'm going to do is I, I will put a link in the notes to this podcast about early warning signs and so on, so that yeah, awesome. people who do want to know a bit more about those um, can find out. One of the generals I always say to people is actually, um, which, which is different to someone who's just got used to masking their anxiety on a permanent basis, but actually, in terms of people experiencing anxiety, uh, who are not normally anxious just as a general principle if someone has a change of behavior just notice it like it doesn't matter if we're talking about stress you know overwhelm anxiety depression whatever it is if you notice that someone's being a bit more a bit quieter than normal a bit more irritable than normal whatever it might be you know they're later than normal to meetings or not meeting deadlines or whatever it is just take that as a cute just notice and be curious and you know, work out what's potentially going on, and it could be nothing, but there's a fair chance it, there could be something that's going on for that person in that moment. It doesn't mean it's a, you know, we've got to start jumping them down and panicking and saying this person's got significant mental health problems. It could be there's a blip, there's something going on for them right now, and actually next week it'll be fine. But if we could be caring in the moment now, and help them get through this particular week whatever's going on there's a fair chance next week they can be back to normal rather than ignoring it and then suddenly on that slippery slope downwards so um so I'll put some of that in the in the um the notes what I'm what I'd like to talk about now with you Nick is some of the strategies that companies could be engaging with so again when you're talking with organizations around what they can do more of they can do differently what sorts of things would you encourage companies to think about sort of a quite specific level around sort of reducing anxiety or addressing anxiety if they know it's present? I mean, the the first step is, is, is getting started. I think you kind of made the point that some organizations don't know where to start, but having that awareness that this isn't something we can ignore. And if we need help to, to, to get started, then, then so be it. I think 
to try and address that question holistically, you know, the, the experience I shared earlier about the employee resource group, we were pushing change from the bottom mm. and we were only successful to a point. So if you want to affect change around mental health, around anxiety in the workplace, it has to be bottom up and top down. What does that mean? Well, it means facilitating things like employee resource groups. If you've got passionate people that, that want to see a change, it, you know, it means giving them the space, the support, allowing them the time alongside day job, giving them a bit, a bit of money. Some of the things that I had to really fight for, mm. but it goes back to some of the things that, that we were saying earlier on. I think you've mentioned it. The change fundamentally has to start with leadership. Like how, if you want to get specific on that, you know, articulating that this is important, like saying it out loud, it sounds almost too obvious, but so many businesses aren't communicating to their people that this is important to us. Mm. So many leaders out there aren't comfortable to say, look, I struggle. You know, don't, don't sit there thinking that I'm ne that I'm never struggling, that I'm never feeling anxious because that's just not true. I mean, it might be true for one or two percent. For the vast majority of those leaders, they're going to have felt that at some point. And I think just opening up the space and sharing a bit of your own perspective on these things is massive. I think with, with and with that, you know, that that suggestion about showing what we're anxious about, even just the language you use around that. So if you're in a team meeting and it's like, well, you know, is any is anyone feeling anxious? Rather than, you know, because the reality is that everyone's gonna be feeling anxious about something at some point. So or for most people. So actually to change that to, okay, what are what are we feeling anxious about? Because and, and just normalize the fact that we are all gonna be feeling anxious about something. I'm feeling anxious about the fact the fact I forgot to take something out of the freezer for dinner tonight and I'm gonna be in trouble with my family, or <laughs> you know, I'm feeling I'm feeling anxious about actually the amount of email in my inbox or a particular client or whatever it is actually just normalize the fact we are all anxious about something so let's just put it on the table let's air it and let's just see who can help each other with those things or maybe we don't need to help each other we just need to let other people know that my mind is now elsewhere yes um, so it's that it's that whole sense of um just normalizing it by rather than if you're anxious come and put your hand up and tell me actually we all are yeah that's spot on and i think there's also a key distinction there between being or feeling anxious and struggling with anxiety i, I think are two different things because I, I think feeling anxious is actually normal natural and sometimes is super useful if you feel anxious before you're presenting uh, that can be you know it can feel horrible but also it's a useful motivator it tells you that you that you exactly. care it, it it you know it tunes you in it gives you it gets you into flow mm. you know i'm not when i speak about anxiety i'm uh, not talking about you know, I felt anxious before one presentation one time. I'm talking about yeah. an ongoing drumbeat that I struggle to manage that affects many parts yeah. of my life over a period of time. Yeah. Yes. I don't, know, that, I don't know how you would kind of create that that distinction from a medical point of view. That's yeah, how I think about it. I think I think it's a really good distinction. And I think um lots of people who I know who uh maybe have a diagnosis of anxiety will actually lose a sense of then what is what is normal and what isn't yeah. and so by hearing even for those people by hearing about other people experiencing some anxiety even if it's not a diagnosis and it's not something they experience day to day week to week over months or years but just the fact that some other people are experiencing some anxious feelings about these things um and these are some of the strategies that we use to reduce that sense of feeling anxious actually although we are different people are experiencing different ways and for some people it's can be quite crippling because it's they're living with it over a longer period the fact that we can all talk about anxiety we can all talk about um strategies and share what works and what doesn't knowing that that's different for each person as well i think can be quite useful and it's just you know that is also a useful talking point in terms of acknowledging that if you are someone who's struggling with anxiety that's a kind of longer term um thing you're carrying around with you actually how exhausting that is because for someone who's feeling anxious before a presentation or something and they know how that feels actually then having a sense of well you know how that feels for that hour before you're presenting imagine you're feeling like that all the time 
Yeah. Gosh, yeah. And then yeah. that gives them an insight into how people feel who are carrying that around with them more of the time than, than not. So I think it can be useful just, and that's where, about where it's creating space to just have those conversations, just to build those relationships and that trust and to say, this is what it's like for me. What's it like for you? Without trying to solve stuff, but yes. just hearing <laughs> and normalizing and just having a bit of an insight and then going, oh, wow, yeah, I get it now. I mean, that's the mic drop. You can end the podcast because you're spot on. I mean, <clears throat> I think, You've, you've you've probably made the point way more eloquently than <laughs> than <laughs> I than I would have done, but it's just about building that awareness and going against the grain in the sense that as human beings we're pre-programmed to solve problems. Mm. If in the minute we're born, we go through school, everything we learn is about solving a problem. When it comes to these kinds of topics and supporting other people, we have to force ourselves to move out of the problem solving mode mm. and into the empathetic mm. compassionate mode and that and that for some people that's very natural for a lot of other people that's really hard and i think it is i think you know that's a really important point to make nick because um uh brains tend to want to resolve things in a very logical way you know if we're trying to set about if we see a problem often we'll try and work out how to solve it it's like there's a problem to be fixed and also that's something that I think um a lot of men will experience more as well there's a problem we need to fix it rather than um we just want to voice it we just want to air it and get it off our chest and then it, that's fine we have to be aware that actually not all problem not, not everyone wants their problems to be fixed and so and the, the whole kind of logical bit is not just this stuff's not logical it's emotional and your messages in your brain travel down emotional routes far quicker than they do the logical routes so actually just being okay to be in that the emotional space and just to hear and just to be with it without having to work out how to fix it I think it's really important some people find it easier to make it clear when they're talking about what they want the outcome to be. I just want to air this. I just want to share this with her. I just, I just want to get this off my chest. Or actually, I'm struggling. I want you to help me fix it. But I know some people as recipients, like the listeners in that conversation, want to know what's my role here? Am I supposed to be fixing this? Or am I supposed to be just listening and showing some empathy? What is it you want from me? And if we don't, sometimes we have to be quite clear about that level of the conversation. Otherwise, people are guessing and they start trying to fix stuff and you're really hacking this person off. He's just trying to share without you solving it. So being, being quite clear about in those conversations about what it is you want from that conversation can also be quite helpful. I, I love that. Uh, that's, that's such an awesome tip. And it's something that wouldn't, wouldn't always come naturally because when you have conversations, it isn't always natural or needed to be clear on, Mm. outcome roles and responsibilities but mm. in these types of conversations i think that's incredibly important mm. and actually to me that leans into a broader point which is the role of coaching because very often you know in a coaching relationship you set boundaries you understand roles and responsibilities you uh, focus on outcomes if i think about coaching in an organizational setting and then i put kind of well-being over the top of it you know, that's that's an incredibly powerful shift in the relationship between a manager and a member of their team. Mm. Instead of managing that person, if you can coach that person, I think the outcomes for both sides in the short in the short and the long term are, are, are far better. Yes, and I think that's where actually having the emphasis on again it goes back to what we were saying earlier. Rather than focusing on mental health per se, let's focus on how to have really good coaching conversations. And that's where about, you know, organizations think need to think where are they investing their resources? Is it on mental health or is it on the stuff that makes, you know, people tick and connect and feel good about working here and being able to converse with each other and and so on? Which are all things, as you've already said, that will drastically improve. Mm the well-being and the mental health of the individuals in that in that business and 
yeah, that's that's why I love having convers- these types of conversations with people like you because we're, we're on the same page. We're mm-hmm. both doing respective work, albeit in parallel streams, to try and affect that change. And it mm-hmm. it will come. Mm-hmm. I'm just an impatient person, so it probably won't come fast <laughs> enough. <laughs> but I think, but again, having conversations like this is just letting people know that there is a different way of of, of doing things. So, for example, when you're having these coaching conversations, I always talk to people about when, you, when we're talking about anxiety separate the person from their anxiety you know uh, use your observing self get outside of yourself and it's almost like let's put this anxiety on the table what's it looking like what's it feeling like what's you know making it grow what's making it kind of shrink back a bit how can we just actually ignore it today where can we put it and it's that sense of giving you some control because if if you get labeled as the anxious person you know you're the you're the person who's the the anxious one actually that becomes part of your identity and it can be really helpful to for people to know that actually today I'm going to have a I'm going to have a go at putting down my anxiety at some point and I'm going to be in a moment where I'm going to be focusing on this thing because I know I'm really good at it I this is I'm doing this activity and I I know I achieve flow in this activity and actually I don't even the anxiety is not even there so it's being able to the little subtleties around your use of language which again can come from those kind of coaching conversations um which is which is just about avoiding that sense of labels and um tying this person up with you know their mental health whatever's going on with their mental health as part of their identity it's not that you are nick and sometimes nick you you have this you have anxiety but that you are not you are not born with anxiety you know, you're not someone who anxiety is um, just who you are. You're Nick, first and foremost. And for however long a part of your life, anxiety joins you. But again, it's not det- it's not defining you. Yeah, I mean, that is that sits at the at the heart of of my mission is to is to mm. demonstrate exactly that that. Mm periods of poor mental health whether it's anxiety or something else can't you know it doesn't define you and you can achieve whatever you you set your mind to and I think that point of finding those strategies that help you get into flow is something I talk about a lot is this is this holistic view of of us as human beings and of well-being there's an organization looking at well-being holistically the different components of it and then there's as individuals recognizing that you're not you know you're not defined by as like you say the labels that you might put Mm. around yourself you're not defined by your work that you can build a well-being toolbox that you can draw on at at appropriate points to refocus Mm. to rebalance to point yourself in another direction you know I've I've had to build that out over a few years I love I've got a load of lego here a lego is such a great way of getting out 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 of your head and focusing I love exercise, mm. so I play pickleball twice, once a week for two hours. When I step onto the court, all I'm thinking about is the next shot. Like genuinely, everything else just disappears mm. from my head for two hours, and and that's massive. And yeah. we've all we all have the ability to give ourselves that gift, but you know sometimes it takes a little bit of again stepping out of comfort zone, a little bit of intention, a little bit of belief thinking about mm. the outcome rather than perhaps the mm. uh, the process, which in, in and of itself might be anxiety inducing. Now mm. I've learned over probably many decades, the things that work for me and the things that don't, but I have a, I have an open, curious, experimental mindset. So what works for me now may not work for me in 10 years, but I would have found something else. Yeah. So what would you say um, to those managers or those leaders who still think that anxiety as an individual's problem and not a work issue? I would say that they need to step back and do a little bit of research and recognise the numbers and the stats that that, that we've been talking about. Mm. An individual coming into work is first and foremost a human being, but they're also... Um, contributing to the success of the organization so therefore a manager or a leader that treats somebody struggling with their mental health as uh, a problem for that individual rather than a problem from the business in my eyes is not doing their job 
yes, they're not a doctor, and to what we've been saying, they don't have to solve the problem. But to me, it's like burying your head in the sand. If you if you if you push all of that onto the individual, you're sending the wrong cues to the individual. You're setting the wrong expectations and the wrong behaviours within the culture. You know, you might end up losing someone to another business who's incredibly talented just because you're not willing to mm. lean into a topic that you're personally uncomfortable about. If you scale that across many managers and leaders, these are the cultures and the organisations that in the next, what, three, four, five, ten, whatever the time horizon is, number of years, they're going to struggle to attract great talent. You've only got to look at, I get confused with the gens, but Gen Z, I think it is, and whatever <laughs> the next generation is after that. There's so many stats out there about the shift in their perspective as to what they value coming into the workplace. Mm. It's not about salary anymore. Of course, salary is important, but it's about culture primarily. It's about empowerment. It's about autonomy. All of those things are fundamentally driven by leadership. So what would you, in terms of wrapping up this conversation, what would be your top tips? What would be your, I know you don't give advice, what would be <laughs> the things that you would really like people to take away from this conversation in terms of, you know, in their organisations, rethinking anxiety wow this is a huge question um i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna go over a little bit of old ground but i'll try and do it in a more succinct way i would love any organizations that are pay, that are asking themselves that question to look at um chasing the stigma to look at how they can upskill their entire workforce to be more confident talking about mental health i would love those businesses to be seriously thinking about the role of their line managers. If we can shift the role of line managers towards managing through context and coaching, I think that will be transformational. It genuinely, I think that could have a massive ripple effect. Mm. I also would encourage those leaders to look in the mirror. Yeah. Are they are they role modeling the behaviors that they want to see, not only in the work their workforce now, but in five or ten years' time? Are they building a culture that they can be proud of? Are they building a culture that they would be happy for their children to join? They're the they're the things that I would I would encourage leaders to be doing and thinking. That was good. Uh, very succinct. It's almost like I prepared it. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say you can't have done because you didn't know all the questions coming. No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have really enjoyed hearing your take on this because I know you and I are on the same page, but actually to have to be able to have the conversation um and shed a light on some of this stuff for other people and just help them think about anxiety differently. If people just took one or two things from this conversation, just in terms of even just how they think about things or how they um see you know how they relate to this stuff at an individual level then that's that's made a positive um impact and you know better still if people can go away and have conversations with other people in organizations saying let's let's rethink this um but starting with whatever that first step is just starting that that first conversation with someone and then just seeing where it goes, it's it's almost like dropping a pebble, isn't it, in the in the water and just watching the ripples go. But it's got to, someone's got to drop the pebble first. So hopefully people will following this. Um, my final question to you, which I'm asking every guest, is is my blind question that a previous guest has um, posed, and Amanda Page has asked this of you, Nick, which I have to say. I think it's a brilliant question for you, having spoken <laughs> about um, your fancy dress, but you're not allowed to mention fancy dress in this. So what was the most unique style or fashion brand you have ever embraced? Wow. Um, I did go I did go through a couple of unique phases, should we say. First of all, wearing head to toe kappa <laughs> and a little bit, a little bit, a little bit of um tracksuit look. Yeah. And then I and then I pivoted to more goth and I used to wear like full length leather jackets. I was I, I really struggled to find my identity <laughs> for a long time, as you can see. <laughs> wow. I would like that's got we well, should put some photographs of that in the show notes as well. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. Fortunately, I'm not sure how much evidence I've got of that. <laughs> that's a shame. <laughs> Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, 
this conversation has been a long time coming because I know you've been incredibly busy with your work. Um, if people want to reach out to you to hear more about what you can do and how you can support um, them and their organisations, then your notes, uh, your contact details will be in the in the show notes. Um, but thank you once again for your time. I've really enjoyed having this conversation with you. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Thank you for joining me on the Beyond the Water Cooler podcast. What's the one thing you will take away from this conversation to think about or do differently? I'd love you to join the club to stay in the loop and be the first to hear about exciting things I'm developing, including free downloadable resources. The link to sign up is in the show notes. I hope this episode has got you thinking about how you can make a real difference to the people you work with and how well you and those around you are engaging and thriving. Let's continue the conversation about the points raised in this episode. Or perhaps you have other questions about employee experience and performance. Email me at It's Time for Change, connect with me on LinkedIn, or why not pick up the phone? I love to walk and talk. My details are in the notes. Before next time, please give me a thumbs up on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And for an extra brownie point, leave me a short review. Let's spread the messages far and wide. Bye for now. Oh,